All right. Hoping that you guys are already there. I'm going to start with verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. This is what it says. For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you shall say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that you may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, it is in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I, set I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to, the, to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land and you, you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land and that the Lord, uh, sorry, in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Please, please be seated. This was the conversation that Moses was having. This is how he was ending his reciting of the commandments of God that were given to the generation that came out of Egypt. But this is not the generation that came out of Egypt. This is the second generation that he's talking to. Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy because it's a repeat of the first like, generation of Israel to which God gave the first commandments or the first journey started. But anyways, in this place, he's trying to just clearly and simply bring to them, to their attention, one simple reality. What is it? He's saying the law of God is not complicated. Not only is it not complicated, by definition of the fact that God is commanding you to do something, he guarantees that he's only asking you to do things that are possible for you to do, right? These commandments are not hard. These commandments are not so complicated. Somebody from heaven and angels should descend and explain it to you. They're just simple and they're, you're capable of um, following them. So he says, it's your choice now, if that's true, to either follow these commandments and leave according to them and find life in that, whether it's life on earth as God blesses you and your offsprings and goes before you, he protects you, he leads you, and he further helps you understand and keep the commandments and he keeps you in that constant relationship with him. Or the opposite, you will reject the commandments and everything that God is for you in the blessings 
will become reversed and God will be against you, right? And he even says, your length of days or your joy or whether you possess the land, all these things depend on whether you choose life or death. So he simply calls it, he just escalates it to eternity and says, okay, this is a matter of life and death. And I'm pretty sure you guys hear that phrase all the time, right? But in this place, it's the ultimate meaning of what it means to be life and death. We're talking about forever, unending life or death, right? Eternal death or eternal life is what we're talking about. But it, it's not like delayed, I will die later on or I will leave, live later on. That's not how it is. It starts today. It's very simple to illustrate, right? Say, I start my car today, I start driving 120 miles an hour through that street. I mean, you can easily imagine, even if the police does not stop me, I'm crashing into something somewhere because nobody is expecting someone to drive 120 miles an hour through this road that is limited to 35. You might get away with this and that, but if you're reckless, right, not only do you destroy your life, you destroy other people's lives. So it's obvious, right? The moment you disobey something that's meant to be good for you and others, there is consequences. We know that if you disobey the understanding that there is gravity, there is consequences to that. We know that if I do not open the, the, the door in this room and try to walk out of the room, I'm going to get hurt. And the harder I try, the more I get hurt, right? So it's very obvious. That's how clear God's commandments is. So this is where I want us to think first, as we go back to our text, and that's where we're going to remain in Matthew 5. So you guys remember the last week, Jesus was talking to us about us being the light of the world. He was talking to us about our identity being new and how our identity should not be hidden. And we went back to the Beatitudes and tried to see what he's talking about, what God has done in our lives when he saved us. Today I want to section the Beatitudes into three sections. One is, Jesus talked about how, like, basically the Beatitudes are describing the citizens of heaven, the citizens of the kingdom of Christ, right? What do they look like? Those who are saved by faith. What do they look like? I mean, us, the church. What are we meant to look like? Or what did God make out of us? What, did, what, what should we pursue in our lives? The first part he described is a contrite heart. This contrite heart is poor in spirit. It is mourning about sin and the pain and the struggle of living in a sinful world and the sins of others that causes all the chaos in the world. This heart is meek. This contrite heart is meek. It does not try to fight for what it deserves. It doesn't even believe it deserves anything. Everything is a gift from God, right? And this person, above all things, knowing that they're poor in spirit, they're, they don't deserve heaven, right? 
they are mourning about their sins. They're trying really hard, but they constantly struggle with sin and see the dev devastating effect of sin because of others, because of themselves, and because of this broken world that we live in together. A cursed world, right? And seeing that they, they're not owed anything, right? They're meek. Starve, literally, hunger and thirst for righteousness to come in and clothe them. For this problem to be removed. For their spiritual poverty to be changed into riches. For their mourning to cease, to end. For them to stop sinning against God, even though they know the truth, right? For them to just never see another person killed. To just never see another person abused. They cry out for these things. So righteousness is something that they are craving for. It's the most important thing in life for them. And they are meek. And they wish that we didn't kill one another because we think we deserve something. What does James say? What, where do wars come from? They come from your desires. You desire and you covet and you do not have, so you kill, right? So this person is really hungry and thirsty for the righteousness that can clothe, clothe us so that this depravity, this struggle, this pain in sin will end. That's their central desire. That's a contrite heart. And they know the righteousness is not going to come from me. It has to come from the Lord because I am broken. But then that is the gift of God to begin with. A contrite heart. A heart that sees God and recognizes our position. That's not possible for people who do not believe in God. It's not. Talk to any person who doesn't believe in Christ. They will tell you they are a good person no matter who they are. You can talk to anyone. They, it could be in prison for killing 10 people. They're like, I'm a good person inside. I just either messed up or those people deserved it. Everyone believes that to one degree or the other. But God comes. We see his holiness, his loving nature, his original design according to his word. And we realize we are sinners. That's a gift of God. But then God does not leave us despairing and mourning only. He takes us and gives us the righteousness that only he can give. So we see this heart receive the righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for, uh, and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Once this soul is satisfied with the righteousness that it was hungering and thirsting for, it becomes the merciful heart. It becomes the pure in heart. It becomes the peacemaker. Not only is this person changed inside, transformed inside, this person starts to act out what they have received. The merciful, the peacemakers, and the pure in heart are not just identities only, but lives to be lived out. So we see a, tran a transformed heart and life by the righteousness God provides. Then eventually, this heart is willing to suffer for God's righteousness. Because this heart recognizes, even though I am saved, there is still a lot of work to happen in my soul. There's 
So many times I stumble. Even though I am saved, other people are not. And even though other people are saved, they themselves sin as well. And we live in a world that is cursed because of our sins. So all that pain, they see it. And they recognize the reality. And they say the only way to live out righteousness is if I choose to suffer. Without suffering, it is impossible to actually live righteously. So they become those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. Those who are reviled, persecuted, and said, like, uttered all kinds of evil against for the name of Christ, for the sake of righteousness, for the display of the glory of God. So they will become these people who the heart of this person is transformed to be willing to suffer for God's righteousness. Those are the three sections that we see in the Beatitudes. And this pattern that Christ builds into the Beatitudes, he repeats over and over and over again in the Sermon in the Mount. And not only that, everywhere that he preaches, you will see this pattern over and over again. So our text today is Matthew 5, 17, and it's very straightforward. Do not think, Jesus says, I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This, the first thing we should ask is what is the law and the prophets, or the prophets, as he says in this place. That's a two-part division of the Old Testament. The Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures are called Tanakh, T-O-N-A-K-H. It's an acronym reciting or containing the three sections of the Old Testament books. They're called Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvi. Or in English, the instructions, the prophets, and the writings. That's easy. You can go and find out exactly what books are in there. The Torah, the instruction, or the law, as Christ mentions it in this place, is what we also call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament for us, from our perspective. They're Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets, Jesus is using the two-part division of the Old Testament, right? That's the normal division of the Old Testament, the three-part division, but it was also very traditional for people to divide the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures using two-part division. When you do that, you just call it the Law and the Prophets. So that means outside of the five books, the rest of the books are categorized as the Prophets. Because we know, like even the writings like the Psalms, have prophecy about Christ, right? Anyways, that's what he's talking about. So Jesus is simply saying, do not assume I'm here to actually say the Old Testament is not necessary from this point on. He's saying the Old Testament needs, the entire Hebrew Bible needs to be fulfilled. And that's the next, basically, power word that we need to wrestle with. Fulfill, what does it mean? To bring to execution or 
to satisfy or finish or verify is what he's talking about. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it, may, it must be so? So this is a time when Jesus is about to be given up and Jesus is saying, no, like, do not try to defend us using swords and clubs. As the people who came to arrest him showed up, when Peter cuts off the servant's ear, saying, that's not how this is going to happen. We're not going to defend ourselves and stop this from happening. The scripture must be fulfilled, and this has to happen this way. So Jesus was choosing to suffer, just like I explained earlier, for the sake of righteousness, and more importantly, for the fulfillment that only can be fulfilled in the life of Christ, of the Old Testament prophecies about him. We read today, before the law came, God gave Abraham and Eve, Adam and Eve and Abraham as well, a promise in each generation, right? Later on. It says, God come, came, came to both of them and both sets of like couples, Abraham and Sarah, Adam and Eve, and different generations, and tells them, through your offspring, I will prepare a salvation, basically. The nations will be saved through your family, through the person, through the child that you're going to bear. So it was a promise. It was not a completed reality. It pointed to a seed. It pointed to one person who's going to fulfill the law. It not only fulfill the law, who's going to accomplish this promise that God has promised, more importantly. The law came way later on, like 430 years after Abraham and way after Adam and Eve. That's for sure. So the point of the promise was not, you do something and I do something back for you. You obey me. And I save you. That, that wasn't it. That, that's not a promise. But it was, I will save you. Even though God clearly told Adam and Eve, the moment you sin, you will die. You see God being gracious and forgiving them and even promising to save them. Right? And you see God letting them be. And they don't die immediately after they commit the sin. This is Isaiah 53 talking about Christ. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is about Christ. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. So simply, Jesus came not to get rid of the law and the prophets, or the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, but to live a perfect life on our behalf. And this should not be new to us who are Christians, right? He lived a perfect life in the sight of God, not only according to the law, beyond the law, right? And he, br he brought to pass all the things that are written about him so that we can be saved through him. 
it's not just about obedience. It was also about things like we shall like we should look at him and like he would be despised, that he would be rejected. The builders, like the, the leaders of Israel, should reject the Christ. Those things needed to come to pass. The fact that he would die on a cross, right? The fact that he will enter Jerusalem on a colt. All those things needed to pass. It's not just obedience that was necessary for Christ. Everything written about the seed that was to come must come to pass. And that's why the Old Testament was so arranged that it was all about genealogy. It was all about this person gave birth to this person and through this journey, this person came and like it was just tracing bloodline after bloodline. That was the point because it was waiting for the seed that will come and obey and fulfill these things for the promise to be true. So in that fulfillment, there are two sections according to Isaiah 53. Jesus is going to come, the seed is going to come, the Christ is going to come and teach us his knowledge, which makes the people who learn it and practice it righteous. And he is going to bear our iniquities on the cross and die on our behalf. So he's going to pay for the day you eat of this fruit, you will die. He's going to pay for what we have done, sin, and the wages of sin being death. But he's also going to teach us what righteousness is like. So if you want to label the Sermon on the Mount, what is it about? It's a teaching about the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a very central theme in this sermon. So this is amazing. It's the righteousness of Christ that carries us, that teaches us, that comforts us, that intercedes for us today as we live our Christian life. So, so for us as a church, what does this mean? Not only did he die to pay the penalties of our sin, but he lived a perfect life of obedience and fulfilled the law. For those who put their trust in him. For those who by faith say, the righteousness of Christ is mine. The death of Christ is my death. There is a union there. There is a unity there. There is a life there that cannot be had without that. So we get a new life. There's nothing we can add to the completed work of Christ, but only receive it by faith. Live a life according to his teaching, since that's the only righteousness God seeks and that we are responsible over. So it's no longer a righteousness that's magical, that comes in and wraps around you and that's it. No. It's a supernatural righteousness, an imputation of righteousness. That's how it starts. Without it, we got nothing. But that righteousness does not remain dead while we are alive on this earth. 
that righteousness causes more righteousness in our lives. Just like Moses said to the people of Israel, by the way, the second generation was the generation that pleased God, that obeyed God, the one he told, do not say this commandment is far from me or hard to do. It's near you. You've been told and it's possible for you to obey it. The same thing is being told us by Christ. He has fulfilled it so that it may overflow in righteousness in our lives. That we may be responsible to live righteously, knowing that we have confidence in Christ over the things that we struggle with. So Jesus goes on to say, it's just very simple. I want you to get this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a, a dot, not a comma, to put it into English, will pass away from the law, from what is written in the Old Testament scriptures. By the way, in the Old Testament scriptures, it's not just written about Christ. It's not just written about just the law. It's also written about the people of God in whose hearts the law of God is written. The followers of the servant of God whose lives are going to be transformed by the teachings of Christ. Whose lives are going to be transformed by the work of God in their hearts. Whose lives are going to be transformed by the Spirit of God who will dwell in them. That's why Peter gets up on Acts 2 and says, this is, this is not like people just drunk. These are people who according to what was written in the Old Testament are filled by the Spirit of God. You are seeing the fulfillment of God's promise for His people. Right after that, the description of the church we read last week is, the church is generous, they sell everything they have and they give it to the poor. The church is obedient to Christ's commands. The church is very attentive to the teachings of the apostles. The church was so amazing, the people around them really knew. And we see the church fill the teachings, fill Jerusalem with the teachings of Christ. So we see God himself adding to their number as they worship God from the heart. That transformation is written about in the Old Testament. That transformation is part of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Christ is doing his work through his people still now. It's necessary part of the Christian. It's actually the Christian life. That's all we are here for. To be sanctified through the work of Christ in our lives like that. To be transformed by the word of God. For our lives to represent as lights in the world the wisdom of God. The wisdom of Christ. The light of Christ. So this is what he's talking about. He's saying, you know when heaven and earth pass away in, 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 like in, in the Bible? You should go to, like, not now, another time, Revelation 21. This is what it says. Then I saw a new earth and a new heaven. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, by, but my words will not pass away. You know what? What, where Revelation 21 starts, it's at the end of the judgment before the white throne, where everyone is judged who is not written in the book of life according to the law of God. 
that was communicated to humanity. That's when the old earth right now, the one we live in, and the old heavens, the universe, the whole cosmos is actually gone. It's going to be burnt up after that point. And those who are sinners, who anyone who's being judged by God according to his law, by definition, you guys know, ends up dead. Because by God's law, nobody is going to be justified. If you told one white lie, that's enough. If you kept everything perfectly, but you are angry at your brother, that's enough. If you kept everything perfectly, but if you once lusted after a person by just looking at them, you're done. There is no hope for us if we're judged by the law of God. So Jesus says, until that day when this judgment takes effect according to the law, the law will stand. So he's saying, not a dot, not, not, not a comma, not, not a tense is going to be removed from, from the law. And Jesus even clearly puts it. Anyone who even relaxes any of the laws, the smallest of the commandments, or teaches others to relaxes and lives like that based on a relaxed version of the law, or anyone who teaches others to do the same shall be called what? Least in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this wording. He's saying among believers, anyone who's just like relaxed about God's holiness, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You might be saying, what does that mean, like least? Like, what big of a deal is that? If I said the president of the U.S. is here right now, there is some kind of excitement that builds up. And if I ask each one of you, like, who's the one person you would love to see, but you won't be able to see? And I said, that person is right here. There's an excitement that builds up. There's a sense of awe. There's like, can I even talk to him or talk to her? Whoever you're looking forward to, to me. We say that because of the power they have, the influence they have, the fame they have, the abilities they have, the knowledge they have, whatever reasons we may have. You know why we put them in, in, in a place where they have high status? Because the things we value are either fame or money or status or knowledge. All of these things that mean nothing before God. In heaven, though, righteousness is the single most important thing. Because righteousness is right standing with God. Living in a manner that is pleasing to God is the currency of heaven. You see people work their whole lives to succeed and build something big for themselves. Guess what? Jesus gave us the true version of what that's supposed to look like. Lay up your treasures in heaven. You know how you lay up your treasures in heaven? You lay down your treasures on earth. You actually give it to the poor. You actually suffer for righteousness sake. You actually 
help others get the message of Christ at a cost to you. That's how you lay up your treasures in heaven. So we're talking about the kingdom of heaven has this true currency that's beyond any value we can put on it. That's bought by the blood of Christ given to the saints. And those who relax the law of God, who do not care about holiness, who do not care about righteousness, those who live like the world in the kingdom, Christians who just struggle to even care about this kind of righteousness, of perfect righteousness, fear before the Lord that everything that he told us to do must be done seriously. They will end up being called least, meaning all that status. Like it's like someone working really hard their entire lives and getting to have all the money in the world, right? And then losing it 10 minutes later. As soon as they're about to just enjoy it, it's just gone. That person is in a worse position than the person who's been relaxing their whole lives and they didn't even make anything out of their lives. They're not going to be disappointed in the lives that they live, because they didn't struggle for it. But a person who worked really hard, hoping in money, hoping on status, whatever you call it. It might be education. You're educated to a certain level, and all of a sudden they tell you, your education is worthless. I know you took like 12 years to study this, right? But from this point on, we don't need what you took. That would be sad, right, for most of us. It's going to be like that in heaven. For a person, not who disobeys God's word constantly. That's not a Christian. We're talking about for a person that relaxes one of the least of the commandments that God gives. The person who listens to Christ's voice and thinks, yeah, I love Christ and I follow him on almost everything but one thing. You know, I love Christ that he says like, we should love others, you know, we should serve others, you know what I mean? The only problem that I have is, like, he's got problems with, like, sin. You know, like, it's not going to make it easy for me to be part of the society if I'm so serious about sin. It's not going to work, right? Like, there's a bunch of sinners around me, including me. So Jesus is saying, no, really understand. This is the teaching of Christ that makes a person righteous, by the way. Do not even neglect the smallest thing that you think. It, this No, Jesus is not going to make a big deal out of this. Don't even think like that. Or let me put it in a very popular phrasing. What's wrong with it? The, bubbles, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. You know it's wrong. What's wrong with it? You know what I mean? Like, the Bible doesn't say anything about how to use your phone, right? What's wrong with me, like, completely glued to my phone for hours a day? What's wrong with that? That, Jesus says, be careful not to live like that. Live like this. How can I glorify my Father who is in heaven? How could I be a light in the world through suffering? Live like that. That will lead you in the right direction. What's wrong with it? In the kingdom, even if you don't lose your salvation, let's say this is a very mild topic, right? It's not a fundamental disobedience. 
yet you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And heaven lasts forever. Whatever value we think we have in this life is like that. It's gone. Compared to the eternal consequences that it will have in heaven. So that's the thing that he's talking to us about. He's sobering us to the reality that this is extremely important. The smallest of God's commands is extremely important. It's life and death, as I said earlier. So, but that's, that's just warning number one. Warning number one says, relaxing the least of the commandments and teaching others to do the same will make you the least in the kingdom of heaven. Literally, like, in a value system that is perfect. Like, even for a cup of water that you give to someone, you will be rewarded forever. In a, in a status bar, literally, right, that accounts for everything you've done, good and evil, you're going to be... Well, statusless, let's let's say. We we really struggle. I don't want to look bad in front of people, right? So we want to make sure, right? Like we have this acceptable social attire and behavior so that others will not treat us in the way we don't want to be treated or something, right? We care so much about that. Jesus is saying forever there's a status that you should really a million times care about more than that. And he's saying, you're going to score zero on that. So he's saying, do not even let the least of the commandments, according to your own understanding, fall through. Don't let it be something that you despise or neglect or forget or you know, presumptuously go against. It says, take everything very seriously in the word of God. Because none of the laws of God are small. <laughs> Nothing in the law is least in reality. We think that way because of our fallenness. Because we live in a fallen world whose priorities and systems are like, prioritized in ways that are opposite to God's kingdom. There's nothing least in the commandments that God gives. So doing the whole law, though, all of it, taking it all seriously, makes the person called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is very interesting, right? Like, just being serious about everything that Christ commands, everything that the Old Testament teaches, will bring a person to the opposite side of the status. 100%. Even beyond. Great. So, there's going to be a division even among believers as we live on earth or in heaven, right? Him who is faithful over little will be positioned over little. Him he is who is like faithful over unfaithful over little will not be positioned appropriately when the kingdom of heaven rises. 
So if we're faithful what, with what we have today, it's, it means a whole lot in the kingdom of heaven. And if we're unfaithful with what we have today, the loss is going to be great. So, what does this mean? Simply, as I said earlier, I want you guys to think of the story of Job. Job was a righteous person in the sight of God. And as far as human life is concerned, he was rich. He had plenty of children. He, had, he was considered amazing in his society. He loved the poor. He judged for the poor. He was generous. You can imagine in every way, whether people perceive him or from the sight of God, Job was a righteous person who had everything he needed. Then we see him lose everything just like that. Nothing about the righteousness of Job changes, by the way, when that happens. And we see that story and we're like, wow, that's a huge punishment. Well, Job gets back double fold of whatever he had. Better looking children, right? More wealth at the end of the story. Not as a payment for how good he has been, but as a gift from the Lord, right? It's kind of like that, this story. It's kind of what Christ is saying to us. Live in a manner where when you stay righteous, you end up in a place where you feel like the meek person, the person who has to mourn, the person who does not have the spiritual wealth to enter heaven. It feels so hard to go through. It's, it's something you want to avoid, yet it's the only way of righteousness. If God's will is that, it's the only way of righteousness. But God is saying, when you actually obey Him, when He gives you righteousness, when you're becoming this peacemaker, this person who's persecuted for righteousness sake, that's not you doing something so that God could pay you later on. As we live like that, God is saying, there's a reward that I have prepared for you. That life has value. That righteousness means something for your life and others in this life, as well as in the life to come, basically. And the reward is not going to be like Job, where it's like you get stuff and children. That's not the main point of the Christian life. The reward is the Lord himself. Because, I mean, honestly, maybe like 70% of us may be excited by what most of society is excited by. There's like that 30% who's like, I don't care. I mean, I think this is all stupid, right? There are people that are like that. There's one thing that nobody can reject in their right mind. That's a deep, fulfilling, eternal relationship with the creator of heaven and earth, whom we don't even know, whom we are created for, who will never grow old. So Jesus is telling us this. As believers, even forget about everything. As believers, as we live as Christians, there is going to be a division among us 
based on how we respond to God's righteousness, how we respond to God's law. But the warning number two is very gloomy, and that's why I've been trying to my best to avoid it. Or not avoid it, to delay it, let's say. If you really get the weight of the things that I have been saying to this point, the second warning is going to be extremely serious. It says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, because Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is an introduction for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This idea will go on to the rest of the sermon, the rest of the series that we're going to go through. This is the scariest thing Christ says in his sermon. There's a righteousness that God accept, like, expects that's supposed to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And if I told you about the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will say, I can't even do what they do. Right? We will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter life, is what Jesus is saying. So, as a Christian, you should rightly ask this question, or this, this rejection should be in your, in your mind. Wait, I thought we were saved by faith. Are you kidding me? I can't, I can't do righteousness to be saved. I thought you said that earlier. Yes, amen. We are saved by faith and faith alone. If it was up to our performance, we wouldn't be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. Or it's not like, now I feel better, so I'm good. No, that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not speaking empty words here. Like, as soon as you believe in me, it's over. That's not how... He's talking about the rest of our lives. He's talking about how we live, what we do with intentions, what our motives are, what we live for, what drives us. He's talking about that. He's talking about everyday, real life, nitty gritty. You fall and you get up and you work hard and you fall and you get up and you progress a little and you're so grateful to God and all of a sudden you find yourself stumbling. That life is what Jesus is talking about. In this place, he's not saying I will fulfill the law. And for some reason, you will end up in hell. That's not the point. He's saying your righteousness, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. What happens to your life once you receive the righteousness that Christ gives, how your life is transformed must point to something greater than what the Pharisees and the scribes lived like. It must be something more meaningful, more profound, more heart-changing, more real, more God-glorifying than what the scribes and the Pharisees lived for. This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Even if we stumble, even if we struggle. I mean, Paul is struggling in Romans 7 saying, you know what? I love the law of God. I want to do the law of God. And I'm trying my best to do the law of God. But there's a problem in me. He says, when I try to do the good that I know, I struggle. I end up doing the good. I mean, the evil that I know is wrong instead of doing the good that I want to do. He says, I'm wretched. I'm lost. I'm going to die because of this body of death. But then he says, thank God for Christ. In Christ, God has accomplished what I cannot do for me. In Christ, God has punished what I cannot pay for. Thank God for Christ. So there is therefore no condemnation. I'm perfectly good in front of God because of what Christ has done. Then Romans 8 doesn't stop there. It keeps going. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. By what Christ has done. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. For what reason? In order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. People who believe, people who have the Spirit of God, who are led by the Spirit of God, are free from condemnation. People who are in Christ Jesus are free from condemnation. The life of faith that we have received in Christ is a whole new life. Not the old one where we try to do a bunch of stuff to be justified before God. But that doesn't mean this new life that we live is lived contrary to God's law. I mean, think about it. God's law says... I am the only God, you shall not worship any other. How could you become a Christian and say, that's not necessary anymore? You can't, right? It says, you shall not kill, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery. I'm a Christian, I don't need to care about that. It doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, right, whatever the reason is that got us here, we may think, the law is not necessary. I don't need to be committed to it in everyday life. But Jesus is saying, or the scriptures are telling us, we are saved in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Without that, we're, we're done. Even as we try to live our Christian lives, Christ is in heaven interceding for us daily for everything that we stumble in. That's not a license to be indifferent. That's not a license to live however we want. That's not a license to not pay attention. That's not a license to relax. Relax now, you can be yourself. That's not what it is. We are the ones that live by the Spirit. We are renewed, we are new people. We take seriously every dot of the law. We live it out. It's not like I would do it later on when I get better at my understanding of scripture. It's right now. You get it already. You're among your friends and they're making fun of someone. You can't be part of that anymore. You might have done it in the past. Not anymore. 
and and a comfortable, gentle, meaningful, good relationship. You can laugh with one another, make fun of one another for the sake of just fun. But in a toxic, destructive, like dishonoring way, when people make fun of other people, you can't you can't just be part of that anymore. You can't online, in person, whatever. You cannot. God created us to be image bearers of God himself. We are supposed to be displaying love. Not that. When people are being selfish, you can't be part of that group. When people are being self-serving, they just care about them and like they have this group mentality and they hate the other group, you can't be part of that anymore. You would be a horrible, horrible friend in that group. Because you're a Christian first. You're a believer first. You're a citizen of heaven first. And God loves everyone. Even those who reject Him. And that's the whole point. So, unless our righteousness exceeds both legal and practical requirements of righteousness in Christ, in God's courtroom, whoever believes in Christ has been declared righteous. God's word says we are holy and blameless in the sight of God because of the washing of the blood of Christ in our lives. You're perfect. Every day we wake up, as long as you're a believer, you're perfect in the sight of God. That's not the end. That's not the only side of righteousness. A perfect person is perfect because they need to live in that life. Your, your identity has changed, so now you need to live out with your new identity. You need to work out your salvation. You need to show the new righteousness and the new identity that is given to you in the life that you live. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless your righteousness, what you do with your life, is transformed by what I have taught you, what I have done for you, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or simply put, a hypocrite is not a Christian. Very simple, right? You say, I'm a Christian, and you live nothing like Christ. Even in the smallest of matters, there's consequences to that. We saw that, right? But then, you're a Christian, and you call yourself a Christian, and you're a hypocrite. That's not a Christian. That's just a hypocrite. There is no such thing as Christians who don't live out the Word of God. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a disciple of Christ, a student of Christ, a person who follows after Christ. There is, that's just oxymoron. There is no Christian who doesn't follow Christ. What does that mean even? Is there even a definition for that word? So Jesus taught us, seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God in your life. Do not even worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. You know what I mean? God gave you your stomach and your body that is way more valuable than the things that we seek in everyday life. He says, don't worry about it. I will take care of that. Not only for you, even for Gentiles, God gives these things. Even for the birds of the earth, God provides these things. Instead, he says, your first priority, second priority, 
all of your life should be consumed by seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And this is where we're going to end. What is righteousness like? Jesus gives us six illustrations. The pattern he takes is, you have heard that it was said. And then he says, what was said to those of old, meaning the old generation, Israel, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Old Testament, which is 400 years before the people that he's talking to, at least. The last prophets were 400 years ago for them. And he says, but I say to you, this is the format he takes. So he's saying, this is what the Pharisees and scribes call righteousness, but this is righteousness right here. And I want you to know the righteousness that they are seeking, that's going to kill you. The righteousness that I am communicating to you, that's your new life. Simply, he says, for example, murder, you are told, unless you kill someone, you have a murder of them. That's what they taught the Old Testament readers in that generation called the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of it. They were saying, as long as you don't just put someone to death, you're good. That's not what the law was teaching. The law was just giving a boundary. But he says, if you're angry at your brother, if you insult your brother, or if you say to him, you worthless person, says, you deserve judgment as well as counsel the council, which condemned Jesus to death, basically, right? Or, eventually, he says, hell of fire. If you call your brother a worthless person, if you treat that person, or talk to him as if, or talk to her as if they're worthless, that's what you deserve. So Jesus elevates the truth what, of what the law was communicating. The law was not saying, don't do this, don't do that. That was not the point of the law. The law was saying to us, God is holy. God is righteous. God created humanity not to be murdered or hated or despised or considered worthless, which you're insulting the maker of that person. God created humanity for love and honor to give glory to his name. Nobody has a right to do any of these things against another who's also a brother or a sister. So Jesus goes from, do not just like, he's telling us, right? Do not lower the law of God to something you can do, right? It's so easy, like, do not murder. If it is like, don't kill someone, right? We will all be like, oh yeah, like this whole time you're talking to us, this is what you're talking about? We're all good, right? Because or else you'll be in prison or struggling, let's say. If I said, you know, like as long as you don't do this physical acts with someone, you're good. Most of you would be like, I'm not even old enough to even worry about that. Might be. But if it comes to your heart and the issue is in your heart, if it's yours, 
If it's sin that's the problem, not the sins that you commit, it's the sin, the brokenness in us. If that's the problem, you have a fight every day you wake up. If it's your nature that needs to be changed, your nature that's already changed needs to come forth. You need to do something to live as a believer. Then there's work to do. Think of it this way. If I said, you know, all you have to do is like to, to, to do your college degree, let's just sit down for five minutes and acknowledge all the books. Yeah, I've seen this book. I've seen that book. I've seen that book. You know what I mean? I like this professor. I'm going to talk to them for 30 minutes and then you're good. You got your diploma, your degree. That's so easy, but silly, right? You can already see it. But if I describe college like this to you, you'll work hard and you will fail, maybe. You'll work hard and you might succeed, maybe. But it depends on you. You're going to have nights where you have to study all night. You might have a lot of fun in college as well. You're going to have to meet a lot of people. Some people that like you, some people that don't like you. You're going to meet a lot of professor, prof, professors. Some people that you like, people you can learn from, other people you can't even relate to and struggle with. And that's going to be college. And you're going to have to do it one day at a time for the next three, four, five years of your life. That's college, right? You can easily imagine at the end of that journey, I will learn something substantial, meaningful, and I will come out not with just a paper that says I came out of college, but with skills that are needed that will do something. I'm not, this is not a conversation about the quality of education in college or not. That's not the point. But you can see if you work hard, if you put, if you learn a lot of new things that are necessary, if you learn things that have been applied before and that worked, you'll get somewhere. But if it's just college is like a virtual thing, you can get over in 30 minutes, that's a sham, that's fake, that's not real. That doesn't do anything for you. It's the same with the law of God, with the Christian life. I mean, that's the least way that you can imagine the Christian life. It's not that I come to you and say, murder is like if you kill someone, and all of us are like, thank God. I think I'm going to be good for life. That's not the righteousness that God requires out of us. But then the reason why we do that is because there's so much struggle when we try to do the things that Christ says. If murder is anger, you know what? I'm angry all the time. I find myself struggling with anger when someone says that I, stuff that I don't like. If saying to someone, you worthless person, or treating someone as a worthless person is going to require for me to, put in, to be put in hell, then that's like a serious problem. But like, I can easily do that in this day and time. So there's a struggle that we need to have. There's an intentionality that we need to put into our Christian faith. Same goes for the rest of the six commandments. Jesus says... Talks about adultery. If adultery is just about physically sleeping with someone, the Pharisees and the scribes did it. They were perfectly righteous. Jesus says, it's in your heart. Like, if you look at a woman, first look. 
and then lust after her in your heart, your eye and your heart, together, you will have committed adultery in your heart. And that's as, makes you as liable for hell as a physical act of adultery would. The same is true about divorce. Divorce is always going to make you an adulterous person and makes the other person you divorced remain in adultery. The same punishment goes for them. So Jesus is calling out of us what the real problem really is and calling out of us a new life, a new obedience, a new way of thinking. He's taking over every minute of every moment of our lives. And he's bringing down all of the revelation of God's word as something we should be responsible over. But the last thing I want to say here, how can this be possible? We struggle all the time. Jesus is not saying perfect obedience to his law. We cannot do that. But we have a Savior who perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. This is a life of faith in Christ. By our faith in Him, as I said earlier, we are holy and blameless before God, constant. By His intercession, all of our sins are being forgiven, constant. For those who live according to the Spirit. I'm going to read this as we go into prayer. Romans continues. It says, for those who live, sorry, in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the, the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You have ever are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if you're a Christian, right? If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what you revealed to us. And there is, there is so much here that you have communicated. There are even things hard to hear from the place that we are. But your word in this place is teaching us because you died on the cross, we are saved. 
Because you are, you died on the cross, we have received the spirit of life in us. We belong to you. And this is great news. It means that we are not one of those who live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is a gift given to us when our nature changed by your work in us. And it is changing daily as you sanctify us according to your word. But this word seriously confronts us and says, if you live according to the flesh, brothers, that leads to death. If today you live and you call yourself a Christian and you are in that place of the flesh, the word is saying, wake up. Those are not the ways Christians live. That's not your identity. The word is saying, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will live by the Spirit. You will do the will of God daily. You have a new nature that overcomes sin. And Christ is the one that overcomes sin in our lives. The word is saying, if you put to death the deeds of the body, if you seriously are wrestling with your natural desire every day, by the Spirit of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, according to the Word, says, you are the child of God. You are the child of God. That is evidence for you that your faith is not dead. That you're not a hypocrite, but a Christian. Even if you stumble, you are a Christian. Father, we ask you in this place, please make these words reality for us. Make these words inform us. Make these words mean everything to us. Let your word permeate our lives, our thinking, our desires. Let our emotions be stirred up by what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us, by what our Lord is commanding us in this place to do, to live like. Father, I pray that our righteousness may exceed not only those of the Pharisees and the scribes, but as it is written in this very section, as your heavenly Father is perfect, you shall be perfect, loving those who hate you, doing good to those who persecute you, praying for those who are your enemies. Let this new life that was in Christ, that is in Christ, permeate our lives, motivate us, empower us, and make us mourn for our sins, as well as thirst and hunger for righteousness. Make us peacemakers, those who do not fight for, those, for their own rights, but live for the glory of God. Father, I pray that you wake us up in this day, according to your words. I pray, Lord, that we recognize these are the words of the king of the kingdom of God. This is the righteousness to which Christ holds us. This is the requirement of our king and our Lord and our savior who loves us, who gave himself up for us. Let your love be in us and drive us to seek after you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.